You want to know who killed Laura? Gil did! We all did. And pretty words aren't going to bring her back, man, so save your prayers. She would have laughed at them anyway. listening to Lost in Twin Peaks, a podcast for both first-time and veteran viewers of Twin Peaks, the mystery series that ran for two seasons in the early 90s on ABC, followed by a feature film and 25 years later, a limited series on Showtime. Twin Peaks is full of rich characters and situations, many of which will surprise or even shock us. This podcast will avoid all spoilers, so if you're a new listener who has just discovered this episode and wants to know more about the podcast, check out episode zero, show format, and pilot intro. The TV episode we're covering is the fourth episode of the first season, and it's referred to as such on Netflix, but I'll probably tend to refer to it as episode three, following the DVD and Blu-ray designations. During its German broadcast, the episode was dubbed Rest in Pain, and although unofficial, this episode title is used on many streaming services and associated media. On screen, Albert finishes his autopsy, Maddie arrives in Twin Peaks, the town gathers for Laura's funeral, and Cooper learns about the Bookhouse Boys. This episode is not being released on any particular Twin Peaks anniversary, although I do have the public debut scheduled for my 38th birthday, and considering I'm only 35 right now, that should suggest how far ahead I'm recording these. And to intervene here from the future, uh, two and a half years later, uh, this actually is coming out a little bit early, so before you wish me happy birthday, I'm still 37 for another week. So the next episode will coincide with my birthday. But I also wanted to mention that uh, just this morning, or yesterday morning rather, I put up a status update on my site about uh, how I'll be keeping up with various projects. This is the first in line, so this will maintain the daily schedule, uh, an episode every week, but you can find the other details in the show notes below. So I didn't have a podcast episode come out this week on another feed, as I usually would have and hopefully still will, but may have to change somewhat. So we'll, uh, you can keep track of that there. And then also uh, in the coming week, while these are going up, I'm planning to release uh, one of my most extended Twin Peaks conversations on YouTube and Patreon with uh, the scholar, author, uh, Twin Peaks enthusiast, John Thorne, who wrote the magazine Wrapped in Plastic in the 90s and 2000s. So definitely check that out. That will be probably going up around Tuesday, but there'll be more uh, updates on that in next week's. Uh, episode, but just wanted to start off with that announcement. And of course, as always, you can follow my work on lostinthemovies.com. Make sure to check out the illustrated companion that goes with this uh, post. Of course, as as every week, every Saturday, I'm posting a full lineup of the coming week with all these uh, screenshots and images to go with it, illustrating character rankings, showing what the Time Magazine issue was that week, and other things I talk about. This week, 
uh, there were some particularly interesting findings for me about the director, Tina Rathborn, who has a website where she has some old articles posted. So I put some uh, a couple uh, screenshots of those pages, but also linked to her website. So you can check that out there. And of course, I'll link her site itself in the show notes, uh, along with this is something I don't think I mentioned before, because at first I wasn't doing it, but starting a couple episodes ago, and it, it's, you know, I went back and added it to the original episodes in that illustrated companion at the very end, and not an illustrated part, but just a series of links and, and um, references, I show all of the other podcasts or video essays where I've covered a particular director or writer's work. So with the Twin Peaks episode directors, I did podcasts on every single one, um, a feature film of each, like a capsule on each of them. In some cases, a full-length review on each a film by each of them. So Tina Rathborn, her film Zelly and Me, I have a podcast on that. And then also my video essay, A Candle in Every Window, which is part of Journey Through Twin Peaks, focuses on the Twin Peaks collaborators. And I got clips from all of these films and uh, put them in juxtaposition with each other and with Twin Peaks to kind of create this tapestry that was really enjoyable to do and talk a little bit about uh, the the other contributors to the show. So check all that out. Um both in the show notes and in the Illustrated Companion, although for the Lynch links, since there's so many of them, when those come up, there aren't any this week because he didn't write or direct this episode, but when those come up, uh, those will usually be, uh, I'll just direct you to the to the site where you can see those, but uh, in the show notes below and in the Companion, you can uh, check out like Rathborn's, the Rathborn-related media, and also the Harley Payton-related media where I talked about his film Less Than Zero, or showed a clip from it, rather, in my video. Now let's move on to the three big questions for this episode. What is Twin Peaks? Who is Agent Cooper? And who is Laura Palmer? What is Twin Peaks? Before he introduces the darkness of the woods, Harry says this to Cooper. Twin Peaks is different, a long way from the world. You've noticed that, and that's exactly the way we like it. But there's a back end to that that's kind of different, too. Maybe that's the price we pay for all the good things. If the underlying spirit of Twin Peaks is visualized by the images of David Lynch in his episodes and versified by the songs of Julie Cruz and the pilot, then this speech verbalizes it. Credited to Harley Payton, but undoubtedly inspired at the very least by Mark Frost, his obsession with secret societies, esoterica, and ancient myths are well known, it conveys the duality of the series better than we might think words would be able to. And this episode manages to catch that aura too, letting us meditate in the eerie beauty and evocative sadness of the town, its locations, and its people. It also brings all the townspeople together around Laura Palmer, possibly for the last time, reminding us that in a way, she is Twin Peaks, and Twin Peaks is her, that the mystery of that peaceful body and elusive soul are interchangeable with the hard-to-pin-down but easy-to-feel vibe of this remote place, this community both sheltered from the wide world and exposed to the wild wood. Who is Agent Cooper? With Laura and Twin Peaks conjoined in mystery, where does that leave Cooper? Episode 3 reminds us of the extent to which he's an outsider, both in terms of his attraction to the everyday things he sees, marveling at ducks now instead of Douglas furs or local coffee, and he's ready to think about settling into the town himself, but also his remoteness from the secrets of this land, even if the residents like him enough to start bringing him into the fold. You can also detect that this episode was shot out of continuity of the previous one because this Cooper feels different from Lynch's episode 2 incarnation in a few significant ways. He slips much more easily back into the stern authority figure of the pilot, but occasionally with a down-to-earth exasperation that's new. 
This is most obvious with Albert, whom Cooper has written and directed to treat with professional respect but personal distaste, snapping at him, reprimanding him, and very emphatically taking Harry's side in their dispute. Contrast this with episode two, shot out of sequence several weeks later, in which Lynch pushes McLaughlin to appear overjoyed with the drama between his two associates, Albert's just as much as Harry's. We may be noticing a tension between Lynch's and Frost's visions of the character, because while Frost did not write or direct this episode, he was very much the highest creative authority on hand, with Lynch off shooting wild at heart. Who is Laura Palmer? That's the question, isn't it? If the last couple episodes, especially the previous one, encouraged us to consider Laura as a crucial but not all-encompassing path into a much bigger story, now she's starting to feel like it's center again, even as separate subplots are taking shape in their own right. That's who she is to the narrative, but who was she as a person? Episode 3 obsesses over this question. For Bobby, she was a suffering, scornful soul, simultaneously a tragic victim and a tormenting demon. For Jacoby, she was something both firm and effervescent, able to anchor his drifting life and then gone all too soon. For Leland, she was something so necessary to his stability that he can only express his desperate need through inhuman or all-too-human noises and desperate gestures. And through this confusing landscape, Cooper wanders, wondering how he can ever get closer to this absent presence, wondering even as he spends one last moment with the lost girl the girl he dreamt about kissing the night before, the girl who, in this moment, even having just been fought over and fallen upon, looks like she has all the answers, telling him, in her silence, that he has none. The feel of this episode is quiet, moody, and reflective in audiovisual style, while crisply, sharply written on the page. An interesting combination. I wrote about this quite a bit when I first reviewed the episode in my 2008 episode guide, which I'll share near the end of the non-spoiler coverage on this episode. Especially re-watching episode 3 last night, I was struck by how, more than episodes 1 and 2, it returns to the feeling of romantic mystery that saturated the pilot. Even while shooting on the sets in L.A., Rathborn manages to capture some of that mysterious mood. I love the misty scene of Jacoby at the tombstone, and Peyton's script helps a lot thanks to Hawk's wonderful monologue near the end. At times, the episode doesn't feel as smooth as others. Some of the cuts, like during Norma's exchange with a parole officer, are a bit jarring and abrupt, while others, like Leo dropping the axe at the end of Cooper's questioning, more effectively use action for punctuation and transition. But probably the most evocative passages are near the end, especially the way dialogue, music, and image are overlapped as the Twin Peaks theme plays, Hawk and Coop muse about the afterlife, and a closed-eyed, clenched-fist Leland attempts to find and occupy that dream space that they're describing from his island of grief on the dance floor. This is the first episode of the series to be directed by Tina Rathborn. Like most of the directors who will work on season one, her connection was to David Lynch, not Mark Frost. She was friends with Isabella Rossellini, Lynch's girlfriend at the time, and she cast both Rossellini and Lynch as actors in her 1988 film Zelly and Me, about a little orphan girl who goes to live with her grandmother Coco, Glynis Johns, who may be best recognized by modern audiences as the suffragette mother in Mary Poppins. But the girl bonds more with her nanny Zelly, played by Rossellini. In that film, Zelly has a romance with a wealthy gentleman who turns out to be an imposter, a butler, assuming his boss's identity to impress a lady. Lynch plays that man in his first piece of acting, outside of very brief cameos, wordless in the first case, in The Elephant Man and Dune. In his admiring discussion of Zelly and Me in the Lynch biography Beautiful Dark, Greg Olson describes it as a snapshot of the real-life chemistry between Lynch and Rossellini, 
and a touching portrait of Lynch's charm and vulnerability. Apparently, it was actually the usually somewhat reticent Lynch who had the idea to audition for this part. The film is hard to see now, though I think it's popped up on online from time to time. According to Wikipedia, it received mixed reviews, citing its unsteady tone. Indeed, in this very episode, we can see that Rathborn has an unusual sense of pacing and mood, which has worked better for me on some viewings than on others. At times, the work feels awkward and a little off, but at other times it manages to capture a lush atmosphere that's quite enveloping and memorable. She relished the challenge of shooting and cutting this episode, especially the funeral sequence, and in post-production, on a show where episode directors were uh, quite often part of that cutting process, which isn't usual on TV, Rathborn was paired with the editor Tony Morgan. This is a notable duo, particularly in an era where even fewer women were working in television. So you had a woman directing and cutting the show. The pilot had been cut by Dwayne Dunham, and episodes one and two were edited by Jonathan P. Shaw. Usually editors would not be assigned two episodes in a row. They'd rotate through the stable to give themselves space to work. But since episode two, the previous episode, was actually shot way out of sequence, it made sense for Shaw to edit both of those first episodes. So this was Morgan's first editing work, uh, not just on Twin Peaks, but according to to Rathborn and the marvelous uh, Twin Peaks Oral History Reflections by Brad Dukes, read it if you haven't yet. It's a great uh, account of the making of Twin Peaks. According to her, this was also Morgan's first work as an editor, period. So there's a quote from that book where Rathborn says, After we finished and it was logged, Tony told me, Tina, I didn't want to tell you this, but I've never edited anything in my life. She was a writer and a journalist and just an extraordinary person. We loved working together. We finally condensed it, as you saw, to the expressions of the mourners, and that was not at all what I originally had in mind. In addition to juggling all of the funeral action in the editing room, Rathborn and the rest of the crew also had their hands full on set, where the shooting location was just loaded with palm trees. Appropriate pines were imported and installed to cover the L.A. scenery and create a more suitable northwestern feel for the cemetery. One of Rathborn's primary regrets was the Ed Nadine scene, in which she felt that she uh, got Ed to treat Nadine a little too coldly, suggesting that there was no love between them at all. But after she watched other episodes, she saw more tenderness in the performance and wished that she'd evoked that too. She was saved for a similar mistake on uh, Major Briggs's part by David Lynch because she called him to consult on the script and asked about certain characters. She assumed that the Major was supposed to be an over-the-top stick in the mud, so she was really surprised to hear Lynch say, oh, no, 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 he's a very wise man. And so she strived to emphasize his good intentions and his attempts to impart something valuable to Bobby in the tense confrontation between him and his son. As far as the writers go, this is the first episode written by Harley Payton. Indeed, it's the first episode written by anyone other than Lynch or Frost, period. They wrote pilot, episode one, episode two. And so now they're bringing on a stranger, basically, into the land of Twin Peaks. Payton's work was so admired that this episode was submitted for the Best Writing Emmy, and Peyton received a nomination. Unlike the directors, the show's writers all tended to come through Frost rather than Lynch. Peyton had known the show's co-creator for five or six years, initially through a fantasy baseball league. The Ivy League-educated Harley Peyton had worked in film rather than TV, receiving sole credit on the adaptation of Brett Easton Ellis's hot 80s property, Less Than Zero, after several other screenwriters, including a Pulitzer Prize winner, took passes at the novel that the studio didn't care for. And while that was a high-profile credit, that was pretty much it for Peyton's resume. The rest had been done sort of collaboratively behind-the-scenes, you know, development work, rather than actually penning scripts and getting them made. But Frost was impressed by Peyton, and he brought him very much into the fold on Twin Peaks. Not only would he continue to write for the series, he would also become a producer, taking on, in some ways, 
the primary showrunner role in season two as both Lynch and Frost were distracted and less involved. In this episode, you can really see Peyton's voice coming out in the rich, colorful dialogue, a specialty for him. Although Frost was Albert Rosenfield's inventor and another writer would eventually pen his most famous monologue, Peyton is probably the author most closely associated with Albert's uh, snarky, wise-ass, and very verbose banter. If one side of Twin Peaks' personality is its eerie, offbeat visual sense, another side is its cheeky, playful erudition, and Peyton quickly became an avatar of that particular mode. As Frost, no stranger to this mode himself, says in Reflections, Harley has a wonderful and wicked, caustic, cynical-slash-romantic view of the world. As the first episode not written by Lynch and Frost themselves, it's worth noting that, according to both Frost and Peyton, freelance writers closely followed a strict outline of what was supposed to happen when. Thanks in part to the first season's short length, as Peyton puts it, when you were writing an episode, it was very detailed. You would sit down with Mark, act by act, scene by scene, and your job was to fill in the blanks. If you had ideas, he was open to them. But one thing Mark was really great at was identifying when your work worked and when it didn't. Here's the context on this episode. This was the second episode to go into production in the fall of 1989, since the cast and crew had to wait on David Lynch for several weeks to shoot the previous entry. As noted with the cemetery situation, the team faced a challenge of how to mask California as Washington with a big exterior scene, something they'd basically been able to avoid in episode one. The only shot that comes to mind in that one is uh, there's like a few exteriors of the Johnson household that were shot near uh, Malibu Lake. As wonderful as Richard Hoover's sets were, they couldn't be relied on for every situation. With a new writer and director coming in, this was also the first time Twin Peaks was really launching itself into a new production mode, hoping that talent and the underlying process would carry it through and make the whole thing coherent. So from there, we'll begin to dig into the investigation. But before we move on, I just wanted to note that that video I mentioned that has clips of Harley Payton's and Tina Rathborn's work actually also has clips uh, related to the editors, since I talk about uh, Tony Morgan and the other editors and how they would shift um, episodes. I visualize this all in a grid in that video, which might be fun for you to look at. So check that out uh, for that purpose as well. And that's it for this Welcome to the Laura's Funeral episode. Tomorrow we continue with the question, Who Killed Laura Palmer? Looking at the clues that this particular episode offers. Please rate, review, and subscribe if you enjoy this podcast, particularly on the Apple Podcast platform. That's the best place to get people to see it. And you can become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. As mentioned, the John Thorne conversation will be coming out next week. Big part of that will be on YouTube, probably about an hour or so. But uh, more than half, in this case, maybe as much as two-thirds, will be reserved for $5 a month patrons. So if you want to join at that tier, that's an especially uh, enticing reward coming soon. So thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.